0: Good morning, church. It's good to be with you again. If you have not already, would you go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 1. If you are new here, just recently began attending, we want to welcome you, let you know that we are glad to join with you. My name is Brett. I'm one of the pastors here at Veritas. I'd be glad to meet you afterwards, so please make a point to, to say hello. Let us know if there's any way that we can serve you. As Greg just read, we will be considering uh, this latter portion of Mark chapter 1, continuing our focus here in Mark's gospel that we just began last week. And with God's words before us, let's just request his aid and his help by his spirit. Father, we look to you this morning so thankful and even overjoyed to know that we are here because you have sought us out, that you have called, that you have spoken, that you've revealed yourself by your Son through your word, and Lord, that you have given to us your Spirit that we might not only have ears to hear, but that we might receive what you would have for us. So we petition you on the basis of your own work and your own faithful promise that you would send your Spirit to be our teacher, that you would help us when our hearts are dull and when our minds are scattered, that you would give to us what we ultimately need, as we have sung this morning. We need a better, a stronger, a clear grasp upon who is your Son, that we might have our faith nourished and strengthened, that we might see not only ourselves more clearly, but that we might see you as you are, that we might live faithfully as your followers, that Christ, you might make yourself known through your church to the world around us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we heard last week, the gospel of Mark most certainly begins with an exclamation point. It begins with this grand announcement of good news, and that this good news has everything, everything to do with Jesus. The proclamation is set forth, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, and Christ steps upon the scene. But what does that actually mean? What does it actually mean to say that the kingdom of God is at hand? And if Christ is king, a good question to ask then is, what sort of king is he? Because we can all think of examples in history where merely having a king or having a ruler doesn't necessarily mean that's a good thing. It's not the fact that there is a king. The good news here is what sort of king, what sort of kingdom is among us? Some have tried to answer this question by looking out their window and seeking to make sense of the world as we know it and say, well, this is what kind of God we have. This is what sort of kingdom must be coming. I'm going to draw certain conclusions by what I see and therefore say, this must be the sort of God that we read of here. And when you do that, you, like many other people, can see a myriad of events, even issues and problems. We see the varying shades of evil, the reality of suffering. We see examples of injustice, and ultimately, it seems like a life of futility. And so when you ball all of that together and try and make some sense of it, you can come to the conclusion that many have that there's really just two options here. Either this God is full of compassion without any authority, or he's full of authority and just lacks all compassion. Because as I look at the world, I see that there is all manner of evil and mess and wrong and grief and sin. And therefore, if that exists, God is either all powerful, but he must not be good. He, he, he has the ability to change, but he's not changing the world. Or he is good, but he's just not full of authority. He wants to make it a better world, but he is limited. Or there's other factors at play. And so that's the best that we can do in making sense of this world. But God, thankfully, has not left us to ourselves to try and form our opinions of him by our own analysis. He has most definitely broken into our world, as Mark would have us see, by revelation. He has given to us the revelation of his son, saying, this is the sort of kingdom, and this is the very king that I have set upon my holy hill. Yes, the kingdom of God is at hand, and what we can say from these scriptures is that it is wonderfully Good news because Jesus is a king full of authority and full of compassion. He is actually full of both. And this is made plain for us in the portion of scripture that's set before us. What we're going to do this morning is just recognize these twin truths, that there is good news because Jesus has full authority, and there is good news because Jesus is full of compassion. Let's consider, first of all, Christ and his authority. If you were to read through this portion of Mark all the way really up until chapter 3, you would see that this theme of authority is significant. It is the main theme that runs through this entire section as Jesus demonstrates his authority in a variety of different venues and in different ways. He calls his disciples in full authority. He casts out demons in authority. He heals the sick, and even as we're going to see next week in chapter 2, by this same authority, he forgives sins. And so if we're going to have a proper understanding of who Jesus is, Mark says, you need to know something about his authority. What I want us to do is notice how this thread of authority actually runs through the, the various accounts that we just read through this morning. And what I want to do, hopefully by God's aid, is look at how this theme runs through all of them and ties them together, kind of putting them together in one group, seeing how much we need to see the authority of Jesus. Look back at verse 16 and recognize, Mark says, he actually calls with authority. He calls with authority. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This command to come after me or follow me, as it may be written here, is essentially what we would call this call to discipleship, a relationship of learning from a master who is a teacher. And this call to what we might call apprenticeship, some of you are in a particular vocation where you had to be an apprentice for a certain amount of time, is essentially what is being described here, a call to apprenticeship. And it was most certainly not unique to Jesus. Jesus did not invent this idea of discipleship right here. It was actually quite common in that day among the rabbis of the first century. But Jesus's method here is quite unusual. Because in that day, what was typical is that the student would seek out a particular teacher and say, can I follow you? Can I be your apprentice? can you teach me? And then those students would follow that master. Jesus shows up, he reverses everything, and he says, follow me. He comes after them and he says, I am your teacher. You are my students. I am going to teach you. He, from the very outset, begins and pursues these men with this degree of authority. This entire deal, Mark wants us to know, is on Christ's terms. But there is also an element of authority in what he's calling them to. He calls them to become fishers of men. Now, please lay aside any cliche Christian marketing t-shirt, coffee mug that you have ever heard related to being a fisher of men. Jesus is doing so much more than just this pithy statement. It's most certainly not a corny dad joke because he looks at these men, sees their vocation, and says, I'll make you a fisher of men. There's something much more significant going on because this is not the first time this term has actually come up in Scripture. In Jeremiah 16, God promises through the prophet Jeremiah that he will bring back his people that have been scattered abroad because of his disciplined hand, who scattered Israel, who scattered Judah. And what God promises is that he will gather his people back to himself by sending out fishers to bring them in. And in the context of Jeremiah there, The large part of these four men and eventually the total 12, the large part of their mission would be analogous to Jeremiah's prophecy as they're sent out to simultaneously pronounce judgment for all those who would rebel against God. And this great announcement of mercy for all of those who would return, gathering God's people back to himself by God sending his fishers. And Christ comes to these four men and says, follow me. I will make you become fishers of men. That command is loaded with redemptive implications. It is filled with the grace and the mercy of God saying that he is faithful to his promise to gather his people to himself. And here he says to these four men, I am calling you. In the authority of who I am, I am calling you and I'm sending you. And So whatever we're to learn from Mark's gospel and this call to what we would refer to as discipleship, we are meant to learn that it begins with the authority of Christ. The disciples come to Jesus and are sent out by Jesus because of this inherent authority that he has. That's really significant because what that means is we seek to shape up our understanding of what it means to follow Jesus, or as we would use the term discipleship, we need to see that this call to follow Jesus is not intended to be thought of as some laid back, inconsequential summer internship program that Jesus just calls these men to. What he's calling them to is to be participants and commissioned ambassadors warning and pleading with all that would hear them of the coming of this king and the reality of this kingdom. So what happens if we remove the authority of Jesus from our understanding of discipleship? What we have is buffet discipleship, where I come to him on my terms. I'll have some of this Maybe seconds of that, but I would like to pass on that. That's essentially the Brussels sprouts of discipleship. And I'll have more of this. And we reverse the very thing that Christ has shown here it is on his terms. He comes in the full authority of who he is and says, Follow me, and I will make you become. We begin. Following Jesus on the foundation of that it begins with and is completely built upon his authority. Not only his call upon our lives, but his commission in what he sends us to. Christ and his authority is the sum and the substance of why we follow Jesus. These men are going to learn more of what this means. That is what the gospel of Mark really helps us see. It's just kind of a a creak in the door that opens up that we get a glimpse as to what's going to unfold in the subsequent 16 chapters. Because the nature of this following Jesus, it also carries with it a delegated authority. They are going to be sent out in the name of Jesus. They are going to be sent out to further his mission by his spirit according to his will so again, if we remove the authority of Christ from discipleship with Christ, we misunderstand our call. Because where else has Jesus stood up and talked about authority in discipleship? It's actually a really central text to what we understand as Christians and what really is the mission of the church. It's in Matthew 28, where the risen Christ stands up and he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. So what Christ does here in Mark chapter 1, is really just a microcosm, a a little sample of the very thing that Christ calls his followers to by his authority and in his authority that we go in his name. And so as followers of Jesus today, we recognize this. We are sent with Christ's authority, and we speak with Christ's authority. And if that is true, Can I ask you, friend, how might that change your understanding of discipleship? How might that change your understanding of evangelism? How might that change the way that you think about gathering as a church? The authority of Christ. What does that do in regards to boldness? What does that do in regards to faith and trusting that God will bring about his purposes? What does that do in regards to responsibility if we bear the name of Christ? What does that do in regards to this great privilege and the way that we view what it means to be a follower of Christ? Mark would say it begins with authority. He not only calls with authority, but in verse 21, he teaches with authority. Look how this thread continues. He teaches with authority. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Mark gives us a little bit of contextual background here so that we might understand the significance of this section. They were in Capernaum, it's on the Sabbath, and they're in the synagogue. Pernium was just this small town that would eventually become a really home base for Jesus after he leaves Nazareth. It's in the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, and very much a, a commercial, what we might call blue-collar town filled with fishermen, farmers, artisans, the marketplace that would be there, and of course, Roman officials, told it was the Sabbath. An important detail is this was the day given by God, set aside as a period of rest that marked the uh, the end of commerce, social events that affected a home life, everything in that day was revolving around this reminder that God gives rest to his people, that he's provided for them. And they happened to be in the synagogue. Unlike the temple in Jerusalem, which there was only one, there was a myriad of synagogues throughout this region. A synagogue was a meeting place or a hall where God's law was read and expounded. And so you would gather there. That would be the primary means in which you heard and understood God's word. And visiting rabbis would come, and they would read, and they would teach, and you would respond. That's the way that you learned what it meant to be a worshiper of God. And So Mark really just sets up a very familiar scene, describing nothing really out of the ordinary small town on the Sabbath in the synagogue. But what is about to take place is far from ordinary. It's really kind of the, the backdrop against all that is said in this next section. Because as Jesus begins to teach, it becomes undeniably clear that he is not your typical teacher. Maybe if you attended there as your family and you leaned over and asked your sister, which rabbi is teaching today? Oh, it's rabbi so-and-so down you know, further south. Oh, I like him. Or, oh, I don't like him. He's too long-winded. And just all of that sort of thing that we would be familiar with. And then it's Jesus steps in. They're astounded. This man teaches with authority. He's not like any other scribe that we've come and heard read and expound and teach. He is in an altogether different category. They were astonished. But notice Mark does not focus in on what Jesus says as far as content, but how he says it with authority. And the distinction is drawn between the way Jesus teaches and the scribes teach. It's not that Jesus was simply a better teacher. Don't think that. Don't think in terms of you know, his manner of presence, or his delivery, or just the way that his, his charisma came across, or his particular tone. He was a much better public speaker than these other men. That's not at all what Mark is emphasizing. Jesus didn't come and clarify something that they already knew. He didn't uh, just repackage something that they were familiar with. It would be like listening to someone talk about a book and say, you know, I think this part really means this. This is really significant for us. Versus having the author step to the platform and say, when I wrote this book, I had this in mind. And this is exactly what this means. That's a whole different level of authority, isn't it? Someone pontificating something, that may be true. But then you get the author to step forward and say, can I tell you what this means? Can I tell you how significant this is? You've actually misunderstood this entire section. What this means is this. They were astonished because he taught as one with authority. We see the same emphasis come in Matthew's gospel as there's this repeated pattern. You have heard it was said, but I say to you. Six times Jesus repeats different elements of the law, looking at lust and anger and divorce and oaths and revenge and loving your neighbor. You've heard it was said, but I say to you. He taught with authority. And church, we need to be reminded of this. When we hear the words of Christ, we hear the voice of God. Think of that. The author speaks. His voice is heard. And his voice breaks into our life with all the authority of the same God who said, let there be light. And there was. Christ speaks With authority. But this thread continues. He not only speaks, as we keep reading in verse 23, he also heals with authority. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding regions of Galilee. And then Mark gives us another summary statement and example. Immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now, Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Verse 32, that evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. If the kingdom of God is truly at hand, as Jesus announced, we ought to expect that there would be opposition from the kingdom of darkness. Do you remember back in Chapter 1, where Jesus was driven into the wilderness by the Spirit, and there is this great kind of setup where there. there is going to be conflict between kingdom of light and kingdom of darkness. Satan was there tempting Christ in the wilderness. Does Jesus have authority over unclean spirits? Does Jesus have authority over the spiritual realm? Well, Mark, he records one specific incident in the synagogue as well as the summary statement in verses 32 and 34 of various healings, whether from sickness or from unclean spirits, and that Jesus has authority over it all. And this new teaching that's mentioned here in verse 24, 23, it's not new in the sense of time, like chronological, like, hey, this just came down the pike. This, what is this new teaching? But it's new in the sense of kind. This is unprecedented. This is unheard of. This has never been seen before. And the people, as they see this demoniac cry out, make a disturbance, Jesus say, basically, shut up and get out. And he listens. They're astonished. Not only does he teach with all of this authority, but he even commands unclean spirits. And as Mark would go on, he even heals the sick. It's not that this was some new thing that was so fresh, but that it was new and that it was unheard of. No technique, no spells, no incantations, no grandiose ceremony, just words. Be silent. Come out. Be healed. Be restored. What kind of authority is this? Really, it's not accidental that Mark presents this particular miracle, this healing of the man with the unclean spirit as the first miracle of Jesus's ministry. He wants to show us, without a doubt, that Jesus has come to destroy the works of the devil. He wants to show us that the kingdom of darkness is severely damaged, done for, and completely undone. He will go on to teach in Mark 3:27. no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder the house. What Jesus is getting at is that the strong man, he's down. And I've come to plunder the house. I have come to take what he has held captive. John would write in his epistle, 1 John 3, verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Apostle John having a front row seat of this. And of course, we think of Peter's words in 1 Peter 5, urging the church, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. The reality of spiritual conflict and the opposition of the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God is something that Mark wants to put right before us at the front of the table and say, look at the authority that Christ has, even here. And so as we seek to make sense of the world around us, we must certainly deal with the corruption of our own nature. As you read the headlines and you look around at the world and you're going to see, we are a messed up people, and if you've read your Bible, you have biblical language for that. We are corrupted by sin. The defilement of sin has ruined all of creation. We've been created to bear God's image, but the marring of sin has shattered that image, and what we see in the world is the result of depravity. Yes, that is true, but that's not the whole problem what the scriptures would compel us to see is that we also have an enemy. We also have a spiritual adversary who seeks to oppose Christ's rule and really to undermine his exact work. And so we say, yes, there is this great issue of the depravity of man in everything that we see. But if you do not account for Satan and demonic Working, then you say you have a worse opinion of man than God does. Because he says, not only has sin corrupted, but there is also an adversary who leverages all of that, who seeks to destroy and mar the goodness of God's creation. And Mark would want us to see that Christ has authority even there. That this one who is described as our accuser, this one who we know that he lies, that he deceives, that he tempts, that he oppresses, that he blinds men, that he holds people captive and shields them from seeing the reality of the goodness of the gospel. Christ has authority even there. So what does this mean for followers of Jesus and for us as his church? For one, this church exists as an outpost of the kingdom of God. What Matthew Matthew records in chapter 28, Veritas Church exists because of Christ's authority and the formation of this church and the communion of its members is the flag that is planted and says, Christ is king and he is coming and we exist because he is. That reality is a flag that goes up to the top of this embassy that announces that Christ is actually king, that the kingdom of darkness has fallen and Christ shall return and restore all things in righteousness. And any time a flag sits atop any sort of fortress like that, that says such a thing as that, we ought to expect opposition. We ought to expect that our very presence would be a signaling to the kingdom of darkness That Christ is at work. He has not abandoned his people. He has sent his king, and his king is coming again. But even in the midst of that, we do not panic. We don't foam at the mouth. We don't run around and start doing all sorts of crazy things. We rest confident that Christ actually is our king. He is the authority. He is head of the church, and he fights for us. So we exist as an outpost in all confidence, not in ourselves, but in the one who has authority over us. All that is true, yet it also ought to be a reminder for us of the reality and the presence of demonic activity and that Satan is an accuser and an opposition. And it ought to be a reminder as to what we're actually doing. Do you ever think about the spiritual nature of what we are declaring as we are here this morning? What is being announced as God's people gather together? What is actually happening when you begin to share the good news of the gospel with your neighbor? Do you think about more than just logical arguments? Do you think more about just the tone of your voice or the tea and the biscuits that you set as you bring the gospel to that person? Do you think about the spiritual reality of what is happening Beyond what our eyes can see, we should. It's the very thing that Christ commissioned the apostle Paul to remind him of in Acts 26. He tells Paul, this is through his testimony, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins in a place among those who are being sanctified by faith in me. Paul, I'm sending you to open blind eyes because they don't know, they don't see, they are blinded. And so a part of our existence is recognizing we are speaking to those who do not see. This is made more explicit in Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Brothers and sisters, we are sent by Christ into a world that is not just ambivalent towards him, but is actually absolutely blinded by the goodness of the gospel because the God of this world is actually presently, actively working to keep it that way. But we go realizing that in full confidence of the authority of Christ. Christ has come, and Mark 1 tells us he has authority even over the unclean spirits, even over the God of this age who would seek to blind the hearts of unbelievers. When Christ would say, Be opened. And see, you better believe eyes are opened. And so we evangelize. We share. Fully aware that there's this God of this age who's seeking to blind, but fully aware that we speak on behalf of the one who has all the authority to open blind eyes. So we go in great confidence. This is why the Gettys, I think, did the church a good service in writing this hymn, O Church, Arise. With shield of faith and belt of truth... We'll stand against the devil's lies, an army bold whose battle cry is love, reaching out to those in darkness. Our call to war, to love the captive soul, but to rage against the captor. And with the sword that makes the wounded whole, we will fight with faith and valor. That is essentially what we are called to and why we have confidence in such a mission because of Christ's authority. His full authority to call, to teach, and even over the works of darkness. So Mark would have us know this king is not only one who's full of authority. There's other accounts here. It would also remind us that there's good news because Jesus is full of compassion. Let's end by looking down at this last account in verse 35. Rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him. And kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be cleaned. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer your cleansing what Moses commanded you for proof to them. But he went out, began to talk freely about it, And to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was in desolate places. And people were coming to him from every quarter. Mark's inclusion of this healing amidst the other examples of authority is a wonderfully sweet picture. Again, what kind of king is this? That's what we're asking. Does he wield all authority, but rules more in coldness and Bitterness and detached from his people? Is that the kind of king that we have? Or is he a wonderfully benevolent king, but just ultimately a figurehead? He's really powerless. What sort of king do we have? Mark would have us to know that this Jesus is full of authority and full of compassion. Leprosy was a widespread disease in first century Mediterranean world, and it was a highly contagious skin disease, and it was synonymous with all sorts of superstition and fear. If you were found to have leprosy, you were deemed not just to be unwell, but unwanted. Leprosy could not be healed in the ancient world, and so lepers were cast out of this covenant community. To hear this diagnosis was not just something of your physical condition, but it affected the entirety of who you are, relationally, spiritually, even geographically. Leviticus 13, the instruction was given there, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes, let the hair of his head hang loose. He shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean, and he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside of the camp. Those short statements there in Leviticus just paint the desperate nature of this reality. He's unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside of the camp. And this man, this leper, comes to Jesus, and he says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Why does Mark include this? Is there anything significant here for us who would seek to be followers of Christ, faithful to his call? J.C. Ryle answered, yes, with an exclamation point to that question. Is there anything significant for us? Yes, indeed there is. There is a foul sin, a foul soul disease which is ingrained into our very nature. It cleaves to our bones and marrow with deadly force. That disease is the plague of sin. He goes on, like leprosy, it is a deep-seated disease, infecting every part of our nature, heart, will, conscience, understanding, memory, and affections. Like leprosy, it makes us loathsome abominable, unfit for the company of God, and unmet for the glory of heaven. Like leprosy, it is incurable by any earthly physician and is slowly but surely dragging us down to the second death. And worst of all, far worse than leprosy, it is a disease from which no mortal man is exempt. We are all in God's sight as an unclean thing. What can we learn from this leper concerning our own condition. What does Mark and his inclusion of this account teach us about Jesus? Mark lays this account alongside several other examples of Jesus's authority. And as we hear that the kingdom has come, the kingdom of God is at hand, we read and hear of a story after story of his authority. Mark says, ah, yes, but you need to know this as well. A leper came to him, kneeling, imploring him Lord if you will you can make me clean and what do we hear with the ears of faith I will I will be cleansed we so desperately need to hear this after all how often do you find yourself asking the very same question as the leper you've read your bible you're convinced of Jesus's authority You're convinced of his sovereignty. You know he is the creator. You know he is able. You come not questioning his ability, but his willingness. Lord, would you do this? I don't doubt that you could. I'm just not convinced that you would. And Mark says, here, read this. He is full of authority, and he is full of compassion. He is the one who not only can, but also says, I will be cleansed. I am so glad that this account is recorded in our Bibles because Mark wants us to know, to be assured that we hear these words of Christ this morning. I am willing, be clean. That he has the authority to say that and the compassion to even do so. And the response of Jesus to this leper is no less scandalous than the leper's approaching of Jesus. Because if you were there and you would have heard this request, that it would have been the gasp in the room, what is going to happen here? And to not only hear the words of, I am willing, be cleansed, but what does Jesus do? He responds full of compassion. Instead of contempt, there's compassion. Rather than turning towards or turning away from the leper, he turns toward him rather than recoiling back he actually reaches forward and Mark tells us he touches him as he says these words unlike any other rabbi Jesus is not polluted by the leper's disease rather the leper is cleansed by Jesus that is unbelievable and that is tremendously good news For anyone who's hearing of these similarities between what leprosy was and what sin does. That is tremendously good news for anybody who is convinced that they need to be cleansed. That is tremendously good news for anybody who knows of the authority of Christ, but is questioning the willingness of Christ to extend forgiveness, to cleanse, to be made whole. Of all that we could read or hear of Jesus this right here it ought to make us leap for joy yes leap for joy that he has authority but what good is authority if there is no compassion leap for joy that he has compassion but what good is it if he is not able and yet mark holds up both and says church rejoice the christ that we worship is not only fully able he is also fully willing because just like the leper, in our sin, we are isolated, we are outcasts, we are shut out from the kingdom of God. If you do not know that as the result of your sin and, and the penalty of your sin, we would want to be absolutely clear with you on that as followers of Jesus. The teaching of Christ cannot be rounded off or somehow polished away. It is explicitly clear that not everyone will enter the kingdom of God. In fact, Paul would teach this. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. See, this is what the gospel proclaims so explicitly and clearly, that there are some who will be cast out, some who actually look a lot like each one of us. But the difference between those who are in the kingdom of God and those who are outside of the kingdom of God is not an issue of what they have done or haven't done. It's an issue of, have they been washed? Have they been sanctified? Have they, like this leper, said, if you're willing, would you make me clean? That is the difference. The kingdom of God has come, and what it proclaims is that those who need to be washed, those who need to be cleansed, can actually know the goodness of their guilt being washed away, of their shame being removed, of the judgment for sin being paid. Because that is who Christ is, and that is what he has come to do by his sacrificial death upon the cross, and his resurrection from the grave, announcing that it is a sure thing. What's interesting to me in this whole account is that there is another thread that we don't have enough time to pull on fully, but it's a thread that actually weaves these two elements together, his authority and his compassion. Did you notice in all of these accounts, there was this repeated emphasis upon silence, even obscurity? Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit saying, be silent, come out of him. Because he was announcing that he was the Holy One, the Son of God. In Mark chapter 1, verse 34, many he healed who were sick with various diseases and cast out demons, and he would not permit them to speak because they knew him. Even the whole account there in verse 38 in the middle, when Peter comes and says, everybody's looking for you. This is like your moment. Get on the stage. The whole town is searching for you. And he says, it's time to go. Let's go to some other small towns because that's why I came. And then even with the leper, he doesn't parade him in front of the town and say, behold, the man who was leprous and now is clean. He says, hey, do what the law of God commands you to do. Go back to the priest. Because just because you're clean, actually the the means that God has given to announce your cleanliness is going to come to the priest who's going to examine you and say, this leper is healed. But he doesn't do it. He actually makes it worse. Why is it that Jesus is bent on silence? Why is it that when everybody would want to push him towards fame, he takes a step back? Well, it's a a thread that matters and is going to become unfolded in this gospel. And it's just a hint right here. But the essence is this. We won't really fully understand the authority of Christ. Nor will we fully understand the compassion of Christ unless we see the cross of Christ. And at this point, disciples, towns, lepers, ex demoniacs, they don't see the cross. They see, I was sick, now I'm healed. They hear, He teaches with authority I've never heard. And what Jesus is going to continue to do is, He's is going to announce, This is the reason that the Son of Man has come, that He would die he would be crucified, that he would be betrayed and beaten, and that he'll rise again. But he hasn't taught them that yet. This is significant for us because if we do not understand the authority of Christ and the compassion of Christ through the cross of Christ, we will make a mess of the Gospels. Because if you think the most important reason that Jesus came was to heal other people or feed the sick or to bring about a good form of government or to be that authoritarian who kicks out oppressive government if you read the gospels through that lens you will miss what real authority is and what real compassion is it is not until we see the cross of christ that we understand he has authority because he's the son of god and his authority in his authority he laid down his life and at the cross we see this is compassion where Judgment ought to be brought against sin. He actually bears that judgment for himself. That's the most compassionate thing a Savior could ever do. It really doesn't matter if he puts a sandwich in your stomach. If he can't save your soul, what good is it? And so Jesus says, for now, be silent. But it's our clue as his followers, because we know where this book goes, that we can stand with great joy and with great anticipation saying, I see why all of this authority matters. And I have such great comfort in knowing why all of this compassion matters because of the cross. At the cross, Jesus displays the ultimate expression of compassion. The Holy One becomes the untouchable. At the cross of Christ, He displays the ultimate authority, not by demanding he be worshiped, but by laying down his life so that he might rightly be worshiped. And therefore, we as his people, we gather this morning with the cross of Christ in full view. We're not stuck here in Mark chapter 1. We have the benefit in all of redemptive history that we get to see the, the wide angle lens of what is happening. We hear these words in light of the cross. And so we rejoice. We come to him this morning with full confidence in his authority. Satan, sin, and death all serve the grand purposes of our Savior. Therefore, we can say nothing is too difficult for him. At the same time, we come to him with the full assurance of his compassion. We feel the stain of our sin. We know the shame of guilt. And we hear the words, I'm willing. Be cleansed. That's why the hymn writer was on to something when he said, Come, you sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus, ready, stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. There it is full of authority and full of compassion. That is the God that we serve that's been revealed to us in Christ and the one who stands here this morning, not only shepherding his church, but announcing to any who know the guilt and the shame of leprous sin. He says, come to me. I am able and I'm willing. Father, we ask that you would cause these words of yours to take root in our souls, that they would be intertwined with faith they would not just be words that we hear that fall upon dead souls, but that they would be nourished, that they would be fertilized and enlivened by your spirit, woven together with the faith that you grant that we might lay hold of, that we might grasp the very promises that are announced here. Lord, how desperately we need to know in the light of our weakness and even a world in chaos as we were reminded of this morning, that you are the one who stands with full authority, There is nothing too difficult for you, regardless of what our calendars look like, the emails that we receive or the phone calls that we get, that we read all, respond to all with this great assurance that you are full, in full authority. Lord, help us to not only hear that, but to, in our wounded conscience and in our grief and in our guilt, that we would know that you are the God full of compassion. Work in us that we might lay hold of both that you might continue to conform us to the image of your Son, we pray. Amen. As we come to this table, the Lord's table this morning, it is the proclamation of Christ. You may just simply see simple elements of bread and a cup, but actually what these elements proclaim is what we just read this morning. I am willing. Be healed. That's what this table announces, because at this table we experience afresh as God's people the comforting assurance that God actually draws near to sinners and that he has come to heal his people, cleansing them from the stain of sin. So as God's people, we eat and we drink this morning, testifying of Christ's perfect authority over all things, over all our corruptions, and at the same time, we eat and drink in full assurance of his great compassion in our weakened state. At this table, when we eat and drink, what we are testifying is that Christ assures us of his saving grace, his presence among his people, and ultimately his ownership of us until that day that, that he returns. So because of this, that's why we say this meal, it's, it's a bond, it's a pledge, it is communion, because we share all of this Because we are united to Christ, and we share all of this as we are united as God's people. We are the washed. We are the sanctified. We are the justified. That is what we profess when we eat and when we drink together. So it would only make sense then that if you are a member of this church or a member of another church that preaches this the same gospel and you've been baptized upon your profession of faith in regards to these same things, this table is for you. If, if that's not something that you can say or that you even have questions about this morning, then we would just ask that you withhold from receiving these elements. And in this time, it's not just wasted time, but it is time where you hear and you receive and you meditate upon the promise that is given to us in Christ. If you have any questions about that, about who comes to the table and what the table testifies, or just what it means to follow Jesus, myself or any of the other elders would be glad to speak to you after the service. But in a moment after I pray, we'll, we'll come, we'll line up down these two aisles, receive the elements, hold on to them, And we'll go back to our seats, we'll hold them, and then we'll eat and we'll drink together. Father, we give you thanks for the provision of this bread and this cup, mindful of the fact that you have provided the body of your own son and his own blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And we pray that you would bless these common elements that through the eating and the drinking that we might faithfully testify of your death for sin and enjoy the confirmation of our own faith. And so we come, Father, humbly on the basis of your promise, and we come in repentance by the work of your own spirit. Amen.